This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Welcome to the Open Pediatrics World Shared Practice Forum on Global Health. I'm Judy Palfrey, the Director of the Global Pediatrics Program in the Department of Medicine at the Boston Children's Hospital. Today, we're bringing you another program in our series on common global health topics. We'll be focusing on the problem of emerging infections and the healthcare response. Our expert today is Dr. Michelle Nisrenko, who's an emergency pediatrician and the director of the Boston Children's Hospital Global Health Program. She'll be telling us about her experiences in responding to the Ebola outbreak in Liberia in 2014. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you for having me. Now, when we think back to 2014, the world was transfixed by the news flowing out of the West Africa about the deadly Ebola virus and what seemed like its inexorable climb across Liberia, Sierra Leone, neighboring counties. You were one of the very courageous people who responded to the epidemic. I'd love for you to tell us what led you to join the response efforts and also to give us a little picture of what it was like. Tell us about the epidemic. Uh, sure, Judy. Um, you know, so I responded to the Ebola outbreak in West Africa in 2014. Um, you know, as a region, the areas full of very small countries. And in the remote forests of Guinea, uh, Ebola started the first time in West Africa. That's really documented as an outbreak. And it spread very slowly initially um, in the region. But then that area is known for some of its trading routes. Uh, it sits sort of wedged between Sierra Leone, Liberia, and Guinea. And so as people move to trade and go to market, come to the coastal port area, Ebola really moved along those pathways until it hit the urban center of Monrovia in Liberia. And the urban center in Liberia, there's estimated to be about 1.5 million people, many of which are living in very tightly packed slum communities. And in June of 2014, the Ebola virus reached those slum communities and then began to spread very rapidly, uh, given what an infectious disease it is. Uh, as soon as you have a fever, you're contagious, and you don't necessarily know you have Ebola when you have a fever. could be malaria, could be another common local disease, and the symptoms are very nonspecific in the beginning, sometimes just vomiting or diarrhea, and so this really prevented early recognition of the disease. It would be and, so confusing. If you're yeah. a doctor and somebody comes in with a fever and it could be any of these things. It could things. be anything, yeah. and it's a disease that's new to the region. Uh, it's hard to disseminate news communication, primarily radio there. There's no television. Um, and so getting the word out and the message that, as this billboard so aptly says, Ebola is real and it's here, was a real problem in the beginning of the outbreak. You know, healthcare providers were seeing these patients with this mysterious illness, and then they themselves were coming down with this mysterious illness. And that's actually what led me to join this response, um, was a group of people, uh, this group of people, who are Liberia's first ever postgraduate residency class. And this is combined Liberia's future surgeons, OB, pediatricians, and internists. Uh, they're a small group of people, and I had been involved with them for the five years before the Ebola outbreak in developing medical training in Liberia. 
So a team of universities from around the U.S. had partnered together, worked with the medical school and then some of the hospitals, and then with the local Liberian faculty who were ultimately developing this postgraduate program. And so these trainees, really the, the future of Liberian medical system, were just nine months into their first year of residency when the virus struck. Um, it unfortunately affected um, several of them personally and the health system very significantly. More than 5,000 people in Liberia died of Ebola, and unfortunately this affected um, nearly 400 healthcare workers. The tragedy is just extraordinary when you think about the people who are caring for the ill people and having this confusing thing coming in and then losing their lives. So obviously you had your friends, you wanted to respond, but how did you actually get involved? I mean, what, what, where did you uh, bring your talents to the uh, response? Yeah, so our, you know, as colleagues of folks who we'd worked with for so many years knew from a distance that the everyday scenario, like these photos you see in Liberia, you've got crowded waiting rooms, wards where we have two or three kids in a bed, moms sitting side by side for care, that this problem was uh, was one of both the system being unprepared and that was crowding, equipment, supplies, and then just knowing what this virus was and how to protect yourself. And so as, a, as remote um, friends and colleagues were receiving messages from our local nurses and docs, you know, letting us know, you know, today we don't have any gloves in the hospital. And today, you know, so-and-so got exposed and is now at home on quarantine. And those were some of the worst words to hear because once a healthcare worker was exposed, you waited at home for 21 days to see if you would develop the disease. But also for the health system, it was devastating. And so this is the empty pediatrics unit. Because once you have a healthcare worker exposed, they go off work for 21 days. And then another one gets exposed, and another one, and you eventually run out of staff. And so by September of 2014, all of the public hospitals in Monrovia had very minimal, if any, functioning. And this led to more and more healthcare workers getting infected um, at all ends of the spectrum. And so these are two of my colleagues um, who unfortunately lost their lives in the battle against Ebola. And so our faculty lead, Dr. Borbor, and a trained and long internist in Liberia, teaching EKGs on the left, and the beginning of healthcare workers, um, Dr. Thomas Scotland, who was a medical student who came to the Ebola treatments to work, not even being a fully trained physician yet, just to contribute, um, who contracted the disease and, and sadly succumbed. So, such personal tragedies, and uh, I'm sure this affected you, uh, but also you were able to mount a response and to, to do something about it. Yeah, and so what our, our friends and colleagues on the ground kept saying is, we all want to work. We, we just need, we need the knowledge, we need the equipment, we need the supplies, and we need to get organized. And this was very difficult in a very crowded um, environment. You had a lot of responders coming in to support Ebola treatment units, which are outside of hospitals. And so they don't necessarily provide the hospital the support to identify a case before it comes in and infects other patients or healthcare workers. And so what we designed and thought about doing um, with our colleagues was essentially to take the things that were needed, which is training and understanding of this new disease, 
how to prevent its transmission, but also how to provide strong triage um, to prevent it from coming in the hospital. And so this is myself and um, one of the Liberi Liberian Nursing Association heads um, doing training on how to don and doff and protect yourself. And then the problem was if we just did the training and they didn't have these materials, people couldn't protect themselves. And so we realized this had to be truly an operational response to fill up these empty warehouse shelves all over the country where there were no gloves and there were no suits. But that, uh, that suit that uh, she's being trained to put on, uh, that's, you know, it looks like he's, she's going to outer space. This is, this is something beyond what we normally think about. Uh, so it's a, it's a, another burden for these healthcare workers to uh, have to learn how to put these things on and uh, actually to work in them. So a lot of training you had to do. A lot of training and a lot of adapting of how the care is provided. The suits are very warm. Um, West Africa is a very warm climate. And so you can't really be in the suit safely longer than 45 minutes to an hour. So it required a lot of shifting how, how people work, as well as affected the urgency which you could sort of dive in to take care of a patient who was just arriving on your doorstep. And, and you weren't supposed to interact any personal way with those patients. You couldn't touch them, et cetera, if you weren't in these suits. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. It's just against everything that we kind of know as people. I think that was hard on the families too and everybody in the in the environment it was extremely hard on communities there was a lot of fear around coming to a hospital seeing this foreign looking person and then families not understanding that the time it took to come to you in a properly suited way um, to protect them and yourself as a healthcare worker was really perceived as a delay in care and so there's a lot of challenge around um, ensuring families felt cared for and that, you know, you really responded to patients in a what perceived to be an urgent way. The complexity of this, the danger of it, how did you deal with all of that? Because this is really very foreign to our day-to-day -day kind of work. Um, it is very foreign to our day-to-day -day work. Um, I think the key thing is having a good team. And so we worked with an all-Liberian team um, folks that we'd work with in our education years, doctors, nurses, midwives, and really cross sectors to include water and sanitation technicians, as well as psychosocial and community mobilizers. Um, having that diverse of a team allowed us to bring together a training that, you know, we're training healthcare workers to do th something scary, but we tried to make it interactive and, and fun so you could achieve the skills and use them. And so this, these pictures show some examples. You know, we donned and doffed until people couldn't don and doff anymore. They were too tired, too sweaty. Mm -hmm. And we turned hand washing and putting gloves on and off properly into a song and a game mm -hmm. um, to try to engage and, and motivate healthcare workers to feel um, like they own these skills and were ready to use them. That's wonderful. You did a lot about getting materials to the Liberian uh, hospitals. I know you raised, you personally raised money for this, uh, and then you put in a system for that. Tell us about that that system. Yeah. So, in the beginning of the outbreak, when we were just getting these sort of daily, every couple hour updates via WhatsApp or Facebook from our colleagues, we said we've got to do something. They they have no gloves today, and so we did a crowdsource campaign online. 
and raised about $60,000 and were able to provide one hospital we primarily worked at enough supplies that since the day we provided those materials, not a single person, healthcare worker, has come down with Ebola there. But what we realized in doing that early on in the, the summer of 2014, as the outbreak was really you know, increasing exponentially, that who was protecting the other hospitals? And this is when we realized that if you have a single case of Ebola moving around the country and you don't know where it's going to show up, it's the needle in the haystack, but one that's so dangerous, you've got to protect every other strand of hay. And so if all hospitals couldn't provide a solid front line, the health system is still vulnerable. And so we felt as a team, when we then furthered after our, our crowdsource campaign, wrote a grant, which was successfully funded by the Paul G. Allen Family Foundation, who funded our training work, but they also recognized the need for supplies. You know, we it's really demoralizing if we were to spend the time train and then the healthcare workers had no access to the materials. And so supply was a huge component, but it was a component as a doctor I'm completely unfamiliar with. I thought in my head, oh my goodness, how do I figure out how many boxes of gloves do I need? And what I realized was I needed professional help. And so if we were going to really support these hospitals well, we needed a true logistics operation. And so we ultimately looked to our academic colleagues um, at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, Humanitarian Transport Lab, and then also to a private sector partner in Avenir Analytics, mm -hmm. who came together and helped support our medical team to do a demand planning. Mm -hmm. And so essentially, uh, I'll never forget it, we sat down, I'm sitting with a logisticians, and they said, well, Doc, how many pairs of gloves do you need every day at a Liberian hospital? And I said, I have no idea. And what we did was run through scenarios. How many times a day do patients receive meds? How many meals are served a day? How many times might you change the linens? How many times might you do a dressing change? And we essentially forecasted. A it's a lot of gloves. It's about three million pairs uh, for three months. And so we ultimately did what we call demand planning. You can kind of see an example of how we budgeted the number of things we needed per activity. Um, buffering for contingency. And what I didn't realize is that turns out if you're going to support 25 hospitals for three months to make sure they're safe until the system can come back online and deliver through the Ministry of Health and the normal channels, that's an airplane. And so in 2014, I received this airplane with two logisticians and oh, 80 right. tons of supplies for Christmas. Um, it was one of the best gifts I've ever received. And after this plane came, uh, these magicians uh, were able to work with the response structure. And so, you know, the UN mission for Ebola emergency response on MIR, as well as the UN agencies like World Food Program, were providing services. So they trucked everything from the airport, gave us this beautiful empty warehouse tent. We filled it up only to then empty it out again. Just three days later, we started delivering out to hospitals, um, the first of which was the largest public hospital in Liberia, Redemption Hospital. This is a different kind of antibiotic, isn't it? This is a doctor uh, providing the uh, needed uh, preventive care and actually curative care in, in, in this case. Because yeah. treating Ebola is all supportive care. There's no specific antidote, vaccine, medication. And so if you can ensure somebody stays hydrated, their blood counts are high enough, um, that they're comfortable and controlled, you can treat Ebola. 
And it's, it's demonstrated by the critical care we have in the U.S. So 10 Americans contracted Ebola while responding in West Africa. They were all evacuated home, and they all survived through advanced medicine and critical care. And in Liberia, patients didn't have as much access given the, the system beforehand, uh, but making sure healthcare workers could provide basic supportive care improved their outcomes. So this Ebola outbreak for the general population, the case fatality rate was only 45%. And some outbreaks, it's been as high as 90, meaning nine out of 10 people will die if they get Ebola. And in this case, 45%. Which is still awfully, awfully high. Tell us what it was like when you actually arrived in Liberia and, and confronted the uh, epidemic. Yeah, so a, a place I had known really well was very much changed. Um, you know, in Liberia, a greeting there is a long handshake, the Liberian handshake with a snap at the end. And I found it to be a place where people were afraid to touch each other. And you would wipe your chair down before you sat down in a meeting and you never passed your pen to anybody else. And when you approach somebody coming to a door frame, one of you would inevitably stop. One would walk through, and then the other would pass through, so you wouldn't even brush a shoulder. You washed your hands before you went in any building, any Ministry of Health, any anywhere, um, had your temperature taken by infrared uh, thermometer gun at every doorway. It was a, a completely changed place, um, but one where as we started this response in October of 2014, the CDC from the U.S. government and the World Health Organization had already uh, been in place for several months and so had put in place sort of a structured response system. And so in the U.N. mission, they had sort of four priorities. Um, typically, you'd have a cluster system, but as this was such a health-focused crisis, health was the biggest component, and then you had aspects of education, water sanitation, gender, food security, shelter, but with health being predominant, it needed many, many different sort of sub-areas. And so the response really focused on managing cases of Ebola, finding and tracing the contacts to stop the spread, maintaining safe burial. So burial became a very difficult task. Um, funerals are very culturally important. Mm -hmm and ensuring that a contaminated body was not touched by relatives or community members was very challenging and required a huge effort, um, as well as then just the community's effort to mobilize. You know, the billboard in the front, uh, when we first started speaking, Ebola is real, became the slogan. And it took time for people to understand and adopt that this new disease had come into their environment and was there. And so, um, the social mobilization aspect and messaging from Liberians to Liberians was a real critical, critical piece. What did, what did the people think was causing the epidemic before this campaign? You know, it was a, a variety of different things. There, people thought it was a witch. Somebody had put a juju, a spell, um, on you, or you had wronged someone or committed a sin, and this was God's payback. There were all different. Um, different beliefs depending on village, religion, education. Um, this, this phenomenon just seems so unreal and had never been experienced before that explaining it at a basic science level didn't sort of resonate with the common community. And, and I gather even there was some fear that, you know, doctors like the Médecins Sans Frontières were causing it, uh, which must have made it just doubly difficult to be helping. Yeah. So, the, I mean, these suits, as we talked about, are they're scary looking. You look like you're going to the moon. And so when this team of 
you know, moon suited people show up in your village to collect your family member who then dies of Ebola and they never return, you know, the response from the communities was not positive. Many healthcare workers were attacked while providing community service or transportation. Um, we also came across, you know, in, in responding in hospitals, we tried to educate communities on what they're going to see when they come to the hospital to try to encourage people to come back. And we found a whole community of grandmothers who, in a particular village, thought that the thermometer, um, infrared, what looks like a gun, gave you Ebola. And it was putting it into your head and had not been letting anyone in the community come to the hospital. And so we did a big educational intervention with them where we brought the thermometers out, we showed them what they were, explained how it worked, let them touch them and play with them. And and that sort of solved that educational gap. And after that, they they were comfortable with their community members coming back to the hospital. But it was a very challenging, the beliefs were very were variable based on location. Now, there was a, an emergency system in Liberia. The, the Ministry of Health had Something that was... Yeah, so the UN response came in um, after a large volume of cases had come up. And so before that, the Liberian healthcare system and government system uh, mirrors the U.S. somewhat. And so they had set up an incident management system, an IMS. And this allowed the Liberian Ministry of Health to lead. And so this is a very different... Um, very different emergency in the sense that unlike an earthquake where the Ministry of Health collapses and many staff are killed or a war where people flee or are killed, in Ebola, the total number of healthcare workers affected was less than a thousand. And so you still had a functioning government system because they were also mostly non-clinical. So they weren't necessarily coming into contact with patients. And so the Liberian Ministry of Health played a major role in leading all the task force, all the working groups, and ensuring that they were working with their international partners to drive things the way they felt like they should be done in Liberia. Now, you've noted that you did a lot of detailed planning. How did things change on the ground while you were there? You know, it's a very fluid fluid situation in the sense that caseload is going up and down. There's a huge geographic distribution. So this map of Liberia, all the H's represent hospitals. And so we did a lot of planning because the interior of the country, if you're looking more west, is all mountains. And you can't pass from the coast straight up. You have to go around. And if you're going to the southeast, to the right of the map, that whole middle area is empty because that's a very thick forested jungle that's all primary forest that you also can't pass through. So we had road transport challenges. We have 25 sites to serve. And we sent our teams out ready to train, provide the supplies when they arrived, and then stay and spend time with healthcare workers mentoring and educating. And as they did that, we started to discover all the other things. And I'll, I'll never forget, it was the first week, we had four teams working simultaneously. And by Thursday, one of the teams called and they said, hey, doc, you know, we haven't used our emergency money yet. Sent them out, safety first, emergency money. Um, but the hand pump here at the hospital is broken and the part is available in town and it's only $300. Can we use our emergency money to buy that and fix it? And so the whole hospital has water. And I said, that sounds like a great idea. You can't wash your hands if you have no water. And so I said, well, we'll sort this out when they get back, but it's the right thing to do. So just do it. And then and then make a list. What else is broken? 
And so they came back into town. We called our other teams, the same thing. And it turns out all over the country, two things were happening. We, we as the responders, were providing every hospital supplies, which is really great until they get used and they become hazardous waste without a way to deal with it. And we recognized this before we went out, which is also why we had engaged the Ministry of Public Works to provide us with the water and sanitation technicians that joined our teams. But then when we got out, we realized the problems were just bigger than just this hazardous waste. And so we sort of had a re-planning session quickly before the, the next week. We called our donor and the Paul Allen Foundation was unbelievably flexible. And I said, you know, the challenge is, is half these hospitals don't have water. They don't have waste management. They don't have organic waste management. There's no place to put the PP. There's no shelves. And so it's getting wet on the floor and it's being spoiled. And they said, fix it. Like, can, can, can you fix it? I said, well, yeah, we have enough budget. Um, you know, we'd been working well with the UN and the services they provided us, all the trucking, the warehousing were free services. And so we could use that extra money to fix all these water and sanitation problems. And so we took water pumps that were broken, dirty, muddy, completely unused, rehabilitated them for a couple hundred dollars, and suddenly the hospital has water. Um, you know, we took this piles of hazardous waste that we found all over the country because whatever supplies the hospitals had 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 been used and it accumulated in piles like this in the yard. And we turned them into burn pits where this pit will last a hospital at least two years if they're burning properly and so and can burn throughout the rainy season with the cover. And their donor flexibility allowed us to solve these problems in a way that was a system fix and not a Band-Aid. Now I'd like to turn to the audience and ask a question. In your answer, could you first please state your city and country location? The question is this. How do you maintain baseline infectious disease prevention in your setting? For instance, do you have protocols and equipment for hand washing, for isolation? Are you able to gown and mask? during outbreaks? This was hard, hard work. How did your project team feel about it? Um, I think the only reason this was so successful was our project team. You know, these guys were all healthcare workers from Liberia who, when we, many of I had known before, but some I hadn't, that were sort of recruited through the ones we knew. Um, I'd never really worked with the midwives before or some of the nurses. And they came together in a way that, you know, they as a team were the success of this project. Um, I also think they felt truly honored to be able to do something to impact their colleagues and the healthcare response. And so, you know, we had them mastering PowerPoints and giving the training materials that have been developed by international experts, you know, really serving as the leaders, as the team. You know, they went out to every county and every hospital and introduce themselves. I'm the team lead. And so our teams, the success was really these guys um, and not necessarily the intervention. So how did you evaluate what, what you'd done? Coming from an academic background and you know, trying to make impact, we wanted to make sure that we thought about, did we move the bar? Did we make things safer? You know, One of the most baseline things is, did anybody in the hospital get Ebola? And knock on wood, since we started in October of 2014, not a single case of Ebola has been transmitted through a Liberian government hospital. 
Um, so that's, uh, you know, one huge marker. But then at the facility level, how do you how do you show your improving quality? And so the Ministry of Health actually thought about this during the outbreak, which was really proactive thinking, and came up with a 42-point checklist, essentially yes or no. You have it or you don't have it. You're doing it or you're not doing it. And we scored every hospital at the beginning and the end of every visit. And we spent, over the course of six months, we spent uh, between three and four weeks at each hospital in three different visits. And so we scored each hospital pre and post three times. On these 42 On these measures. 42 points uh, score, essentially. And what we found was on arrival, in the very beginning, phase one, first visit, these hospitals got a score of about 23 out of 42. So essentially less than half protected. By the time we left after a week, by bringing the supplies, doing the training, addressing water and sanitation, we could bring their performance from 23 to 34 and a half, which is a statistically significant increase. When we looked at how well they maintained over time, you know, what we wanted to see was continued improvement. We didn't see continued improvement, but we saw maintenance. So at every visit, in the gap time we were gone, usually about four weeks, the hospitals managed to not drop down again. And at the end of the week, they were still maintaining, but unfortunately not improving significantly more. And when we looked at the individual scoring factors of things that weren't changing, it was infrastructure. You know, there was no new power grid system. Uh, there was no new generator for the hospital. There was no piped water system throughout the entire building. And so it was really these high-level infrastructure things that couldn't be fixed quickly. And so all of the quick fixes we managed to capture and embed for maintenance. And so over the six-month intervention, they were all able to make the gain and then maintain. And then we actually, as you'll hear, we continued our work into health system strengthening we went back and we actually repeated this measure two years later, and the hospitals had continued to maintain um, and then hopefully show improvement in other areas. But in this one objective measure, once we made the change, it sustained. So tell us a little bit more about that. In other words, what, what happened? Who were your partners in doing all of that follow-up sustainability work? Yeah, so in, you know the initial acute response to the Ebola outbreak, Liberia was declared Ebola-free May 9th, 2015. Um, that being said, Ebola survivors are known to carry the virus in bodily fluid like semen for up to two years after infection. And so the needle in a haystack is still there. And what the Liberian Ministry of Health realized in a very sort of forward-thinking way is that the healthcare workers had learned infection control for Ebola times. And we can't treat a sore throat with a full suit of PPE. It's just not cost-effective and it's not practical. And so there was a need to really retrain healthcare workers in, in regular infection control practices, hand washing, you know, using a mask, using a gown, using gloves, and then applying it to good emergency care. And so in partnership, the CDC, U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the World Health Organization, and the Latvian Ministry of Health came together to put together a course that would address all these factors, where we could learn and teach healthcare workers more emergency care skills, which as an emergency physician, I'm very happy about, but then also embed the practice of infection control in that clinical training. And so they developed a four-day curriculum for the healthcare workers. Um, we supported the development of this curriculum by contributing methodology. 
And so we encourage really participatory methods and included simulation. And so this is a picture of some of our master trainers with a sim mannequin um, after their first simulation session, which it, it took a little while, but once people got into it, Librarians are fantastic actors, and so the simulation sessions became a favorite amongst the trainers and the trainees. I'd like to turn to the audience now and ask a question. In your answer, could you first please state your city and country location? The question is this. How do you interact with your Ministry of Health? Have you found this to be helpful? So training is important, but how do you actually get the training implemented and applied. And this was where we had to really change our model. In the outbreak response period, we were really, you know, we were centralized in the capital. Our teams went out to each county and came back. But in the recovery mode, we need the hospitals to really own this change and make it theirs. And so in our training for what we called safe quality services, the package that was developed or SQS, we switched our model to be more of a cascade. So we took our teams they went to each county and they worked with the hospitals in the county and the county health officials to identify and select trainers. And these guys were master trainers. Um, I don't use the term trainer of trainer. Um, it implies that we went out, we trained them once, and now they just go and they keep doing this training. We really tried to put a high attention to quality and ensuring that these trainers could really embed this and do this in their facility. And so we had a cascade approach where our full team went to each hospital and side by side with the local hospital-based trainers, they trained them for a week, a cohort of trainees. And then half our team would peel off and go to a smaller hospital. So we started large, went small, while some remained at the first. And they would co-train again for the next week. And then the third week, they'd move on, catch up to our other trainers, but we'd leave an administrative support in place. And, you know, this training had pre-post testing every day, involved doing um, performance scenarios where the healthcare workers had to respond and they were graded on whether they washed their hands, they provided the right care, really in a very participatory way. And so it really had a lot of management to running this training with good quality. And so we left that support in place for up to four weeks to allow every site to maintain the quality. Thinking back, what was the most important point from this work? Yeah, so I think, you know, we we did this huge retraining effort, um, safe quality services. The challenge with training is you get typically a huge bump in knowledge right after the training. But then do people apply it and do they maintain it? And so we went from this cascade training model to then a mentorship program where we spent a year visiting every hospital one time a month and working with those master trainers who became mentors. And the mentor's role in the hospital was to do one-on-one -on -one clinical preceptorship type mentorship, but then also to develop quality improvement teams. And so we taught the quality improvement didactics and then worked with each hospital in small groups at the nitty gritty of what problem do you wanna solve? What are your priorities to then define the projects so that then they could come together by region and do the, the learning from your peers QI component where they presented their projects, talked about their methodology, critiqued each other, and really had the opportunity to share across counties and facilities what was going on. And so we did this over the last year. And as we did it, we looked at how well that original knowledge was retained. 
And it turns out a year later on retesting, we had no loss in knowledge. They're still applying the same concepts um, and reporting the skills that they'd learned in the training a year a year before that, as well as running some hospitals as many as five successful QI projects, but everybody at least one. I'd like to turn to the audience now and ask a question. In your answer, could you first please state your city and country location? The question is this. Have you had an experience with an emerging new infection, such as Ebola or Zika? How did you handle it? Did you use mentorship, quality improvement methods, or other strategies to meet this challenge? Well, this whole methodology and everything you've done in the management of this has just been elegant. And using your emergency medicine uh, skills, but then your advocacy skills and your human skills, uh, you really have uh, done uh, such an important uh, impact on this particular uh, epidemic. I wonder, just as the, the last kind of question, um, do you have any thoughts about how a country like Liberia could be more prepared for a faster response in, in the future? Yeah, I think that the organization and the communication before the outbreak wasn't there. You know, the hospitals worked independently from the counties, worked independently from the ministry, and things, while the information is supposed to flow, it didn't always move. Road conditions are difficult. Telecommunication is difficult. There's approximately 9% of the country that doesn't have cell phone access due to the remote nature. And I think the outbreak really showed that they have to build a, a connectedness throughout the system. And one of the things that this project did, the system of mentors, you know, these mentors are now champions, leaders, advocates in their facility and can be leveraged to maintain these quality efforts, deliver in-service training, be leaders within the hospital institution. And we included the county health teams in, in the trainings and planning these hospital interventions so that they feel the connectedness. And so in our, in our last round of regional meetings uh, recently, one of the things hospitals reported and when they stood up and said, you know, this is what we're going to do for the next six months when you're gone, many of them stood up and said, we're sad you're leaving. And, but then we thought about it and we said, well, we can just keep doing this ourselves. You know, we learn the methodology of quality improvement and we can keep doing and not waiting for somebody to come and change our budget or give us a resource. We'll fix the things we can fix now. And it, it really created this sense of culture change um, and connectivity. And I hope that that's what my former staff can go out into the health system as ambassadors for. Our existing mentors are charged with doing. And the ministry, who we worked very closely with in, in delivering this, realizes is this new approach and this new mentality um, to continue changing the way things are done. Well, thank you so much. This is what global health is all about. It's about giving the tools, giving the uh, structure, and also identifying the people who have the strengths and the power inside them to make this kind of work happen. You're uh, really uh, a beacon for people around the world with this story, and we want to thank you. Thank you so much. On behalf of our team, I'm glad we have the opportunity to share it, and I hope others and other health systems will be inspired by it. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide.
For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.